This episode of Motley Fool Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Bobbert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. What the helicopter? <laughs> Bobbert. Bobbert. It's fun to say. Uh, say it with say it. Bobbert. See, it's fun. It is kind of In this fun. week's episode, we're joined by Josh Strange. <laughs> He's here to talk about the most common mistakes he sees people make in his role as a financial advisor. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Full Answers. So, bro, what's up? Allison, I have not one, not two. Three. Come on, three, 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 three. But three things yes! for you today. Yes. Okay. So here we go. Number one. Financial voodoo never pays. So gather around, children, <laughs> what? as I tell the tale of Don Bennett, who was once a respected financial advisor with a radio show, online clothing store, and in 2009, she made Barron's list of top 100 women financial advisors. Oh no, and here comes the voodoo. Yes, that was then. As for now, Bennett was recently sentenced to 20 years in prison for defrauding 46 investors of approximately $20 million. Wow! Primarily by inducing them to invest in her clothing store and promising 15% annual returns. Hmm. So where did the money actually go? But why would that be illegal to like, oh, because she didn't actually invest it in her business. Uh, yeah. There we go. Okay, there we got it. I'm sorry. I'm still hinging on the hope that there's actual voodoo in this story. Oh, you wait. Okay. You wait. <laughs> okay. So Here's a quote, long quote from Investment News, a trade publication about where this money went. Quote, the evidence showed that Ms. Bennett misappropriated investor funds, using them to fund a lavish lifestyle, mm. using uh, pay her personal legal expenses and repay previous investors with funds she received from new investors. In mm. other words, Ponzi. Ponzi. But they also charged that she used the money to pay for a luxury suite at the Dallas Cowboys football stadium to pay a website operator to arrange for priests in India to perform religious ceremonies to ward off federal regulators. Wow. And to purchase astrological gems and for cosmetic medical procedures. <laughs> End quote. By the way, do you know how much it would cost to hire those priests in India? No. $800,000. What? I wonder if she, she should get, get her, her money back. back. I say so. Okay. Right? And then there's this quote from financialplanning.com. When FBI agents searched her penthouse, they came across evidence of voodoo-type witchcraft. Bennett allegedly had instructions for how to put people under a beef-tongue-shut-up-hoodoo spell. Shut-up-hoodoo spell. (laughs) Purportedly intended to silence silence individuals. And FBI agents also found two freezers containing sealed mason jars with SEC attorneys identifying information. What? Suggesting that she had cast the hoodoo spell several times in order to paranormally silence those pursuing the case, according to an FBI affidavit submitted in court filings. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it turns out it wasn't just uh, clients she fooled. She fooled banks as well, again, according to the financialplanning.com article. Uh, to secure a $750,000 line of credit in May of 2015, Bennett falsely told a bank that she had a brokerage account with a net portfolio worth over $4 million. But in actuality, her net worth was just $35. <gasps> Wow. Yes. So the lesson here, of course, is that here's a financial advisor who has all the trappings of success. Radio show, Barron's List. Mason jars full of beef tongues. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Beef tongues, I guess. Cow tongues, whatever. So regardless of all those things, you have to make sure that 
whatever you are actually investing in is mm. an actual thing. And I would definitely say that any time a financial advisor wants you to invest in something that she or he owns, or it's something that is off the radar of just general stocks and bonds, be very careful. Number two. How can you beat number one? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a tough one to beat. Anyways, number two, 403BS. So we talk a lot on this show about 401ks, but many workers, particularly those that work for nonprofits or governments or in education, they have something called a 403B, which the rules are very similar to 401ks. The difference is that with 403Bs, often annuities are involved, which can drive up costs. And sometimes political pressure is involved, which is often not in the interest of the employees. So, a recent example was highlighted in a post by financial planner Tony Isola. He's a former social studies teacher who blogs at a site called A Teachable Moment. Mm. Highly recommend it. So, his post was basically on two rules that were changed for Pennsylvania teachers in Pennsylvania and Texas. I don't want to get into all the details, so, but if you are a teacher in those states, definitely go to his site to learn about it. But I did want to highlight one thing that he pointed out, just to show how political pressure can influence 403Bs. So he talked about how um, in Texas, it used to have some just ludicrously high caps on the fees for 403Bs, such as you could only have a front-end load or back-end load no higher than 6%, and annual expenses couldn't be higher than 2.75%. Wow. Which is just ridiculous, because no one should be paying anywhere close to that. Yeah. what did Texas decide to do? They just, did they decide to lower these caps? No, they decided to just get rid of the caps altogether. There you go. Problem solved. That's right. And uh, yeah, so these are thanks to a bill introduced by State Representative Dan Flynn. What was Flynn's rationale? He said limiting fees may not only reduce product offerings, but also limits a company's ability to provide services, blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah is right. <laughs> exactly. And further, focusing only on fees ignores product performance and could deny teachers access to the products that may have higher returns. Won't somebody think of the teachers? <laughs> Of course, Tony uh, in his post points out that uh, Flynn's top contributors in terms of to his Campaigns and uh, right. all his, yeah. An estimated two hundred eighty-six thousand dollars from the finance and banking industries. That's um, all, right? Doesn't it always doesn't it make you upset when you actually find out how much someone has been lobbied? Like how little amount of money it takes to lobby someone to do a lot of harm. It's it's crazy. There's also an article I read about him that he's like number two in terms of the top spending state Congress folks. Like he even charged his Netflix subscription to his campaign. Like it's he's kind of an interesting character. Hmm. Anyways, point being, everyone out there, particularly with four hundred three B, but everyone, expenses do matter. Study after study after study have shown it. If you have a four hundred three B, choose the lowest cost option available to you. And number three, we have a carpenter builds a lasting legacy. Now, since we're on the verge of another football season, I was tempted to talk about Washington Redskins running back Adrian Peterson. Have you heard about him? No. No. I don't follow sports ball. Okay. Well, anyways, he has earned, estimated earned, over $100 million over his career. Oh. Uh, but is now being sued by multiple parties for defaulting on loans worth millions oh. of dollars. So, Here I was hoping it was going to be a good story. But I, I got a good one coming. Okay. I got a good one. So anyways, how could he have blown so much money? Indian um, curses and... <laughs> Beef tongues. We know this story. <laughs> no bad advice and lavish spending. So here's how the website 9.com described the birthday party that Peterson threw for himself when he turned 30. 
quote, the party itself was set to an Arabian theme ah, and featured okay. belly dancers, yeah, snake charmers, right. and a rented lemur. Uh, Peterson also had Oscar-winning actor Jamie Foxx DJ the event. Mm. The NFL star arrived at the party sitting on top of a camel yep. and then took his seat on top of a pretend throne with a python draped around his shoulders. Perfect. But I'm not going to discuss Adrian Peterson because <laughs> I want to end this What's Up, Bro on a positive note. So instead, I'd like to tell you about Dale Schroeder, who was a carpenter in Iowa for 67 years before he died in 2005. He died with two pairs of jeans, a rusty old Chevy, and $3 million. Wow. And he didn't have any living relatives, so he created a fund that would send small-town kids from Iowa to college because he said he never had that Aww. chance. So to date, the fund has paid for the educations for 33 kids. Wow. Who are now doctors, teachers, therapists, all kinds of professions. They formed a group called Dale's Kids, and this past July, they all gathered together for dinner, which featured a display that included pictures of Dale, as well as Dale's old lunch pail. It was there. <laughs> no rented ferrets? Or <laughs> no, what was it? Lemurs? Rented no, lemurs? No lemurs or anything Do like they have, that. They have no idea how to throw a party. <laughs> so one of these people, her name was Kira Conrad. She said, I grew up in a single parent household and I had three older sisters. So paying for all four of us was never an option for a man that would never meet me to give me basically a full ride to college. Aww. That's incredible. And she learned about it at her high school graduation party. She was going to tell folks that I just can't go to college. I don't have the money. She got the phone call from uh, Dale's lawyer saying, we are going to cover your whole cost. Wow. Of course, she broke down in tears. Uh, so the fund is administered by Dale's lawyer, a guy named Steve Nielsen, who has told the kids, quote, all we ask is that you pay it forward. Can't pay it back because Dale is gone, <laughs> but you can remember him and you can emulate him. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to NetSuite by Oracle for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're a business owner of a growing company, you know how hard it can be to keep track of all your most important metrics because you're dealing with a hodgepodge of business systems. You have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts your bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com fool. That's netsuite.com fool to download your free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits. netsuite.com fool. is perfect. Everyone has a financial foible or two, but what are some of the most common? Well, to help answer that question, we are joined today by Josh Strange, a certified financial planner professional and the founder and lead advisor at Good Life Financial Advisors of Northern Virginia. Josh, welcome to Motley Full Answers. Thank you, Robert. It's good to see you. Well, it's good to see you, too. Let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the financial advice biz. Yeah, so... Um Born in Illinois, um, got a wife and three kids. And the way I got into the financial advice business was when I was 18, I enlisted in the Air Force. And during tech school, they had a personal financial briefing, and uh, a lot of people were falling asleep. But they were talking about this idea of a Roth IRA, which I had never heard of. And if you save $3,000 a, a year, 
you would be a millionaire by the time you were 60, assuming an 8% return, which was probably high now. Um, but I was like, wow, this is the secrets of the world uh, revealed to me. And growing up, I'd see people that had problems with money and just knew, like, if I have this knowledge and I didn't have it before, if I could share that with people and help them reach a level to where they don't have to worry about money and they can have that financial independence, that would be a really worthwhile profession. So it kind of got hooked there. So you were in the Air Force for six years, left, joined a bank, if I remember correctly. Is that how this goes? So it's a really difficult business to get into. So after the military, I actually had a number of different jobs. Um, and then I started at a, uh, at a firm where I failed miserably, um, <laughs> which is not atypical. Uh, and then I went to a bank um, and was able to actually meet with clients and, and get to know kind of what happens in a person's financial life and went to another bank and then um, pursued my dream of opening my own firm and uh, being an independent advisor. And so I've been doing that now for a little over a year as an independent and uh, best move I ever made. And when you say failed, I'm assuming it means you are were among the 70% of people who, when they enter the financial services industry, don't meet their sales goals in that first year, and they are no longer kept in the business. At least that was the stat when I was a broker many years ago. That's exactly right. Um, I had this illusion that if you're, you know, have a Series 7, all your friends are going to be like, oh, wow, you're a financial advisor now. Let me bring you all my money. But they don't. And the people, they're like, yeah, you should go for it. Uh, when you get your license, they're like, oh, that's great. I've had a guy I work with for a number of years. So wasn't as good at the sales piece as I would have liked to have been, but I did learn a lot about financial planning during that, uh, what I call my wilderness years. And um, it, it turned out to be a great learning experience. Great. Well, so we're here to talk about mistakes. Now, there are plenty of surveys that will list like most common mistakes, but I thought it'd be helpful to have you in here because you're sort of on the front lines. You're in the trenches every day working with actual people. And I thought we'd get your input on what you see as the top five most common mistakes. So, you ready to get into it? Absolutely. All right. Number one mistake paying for kids' college while neglecting saving for their retirement. So that's a big one. Um, you know, they call economics a dismal science because it's a study of infinite wants and limited means. Uh, and we all want to do everything, right? You want to retire, you want to take care of your kids, you want to have work-life balance and all these things. But some of these are competing goals, and there's just not enough money to go around. Um, and I tell people there's really only one way to pay for retirement, and that's to save and have uh, various income streams coming in. With college, there's a lot of ways to pay. So we really need to prioritize what's the most important. Otherwise, there's a good chance that people might wind up living in their children's basement. I was curious how prevalent this is. Uh, and then it turns out T. Rowe Price had a recent survey that came out that asked of the parents, which of the following is the higher priority for you and your family between retirement and college? 53% said college, 47% said retirement. So it is clear people have that priority kind of mixed up. They also asked the kids what's more important. 63% of the kids said college is more important. 37% mom and dad's retirement is mm, more important. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, so you can understand it, right? You want to help your kids and all that. Um, but obviously, if you get to retirement and you don't have any money, you can't retire. So what do you recommend to people who are in this tough spot, right? Their kids might be in high school, maybe, or on the verge of going to college and they haven't saved enough for college, what should they do? Uh, you know, I think, with as with any financial goal, 
if we could have started early, it would be good. But I think you need to sit down and really understand what retirement looks like, what that's going to cost, and where you're going to be able to do that. It's kind of like the adage on the airplane, you know, first put on the mask to help yourself and then help your children. We all want to help our children as parents. It's really important to help our children. But sometimes the best gift that we can give them is by actually helping ourselves first, right? And so when we think about people that maybe haven't saved enough for college, I think it's important to think, well, what what is my child's giftings and talents, right? So um, maybe college isn't the right path for everybody. I think we have a, a, a problem where we think everybody needs to go to the traditional four-year university. And for some people, it's just not possible uh, from a financial perspective. So they don't have enough saved. Um, looking at two-year schools is a really good option. I mean, the amount of money that somebody can save by going to a community college for the first couple of years while they kind of figure things out and get their generals done is significant. Um, there are also obviously student loans. Now, nobody likes student loans, but that's just the reality. When you're looking at an investment in, in college, sometimes you have to fund that by taking out a loan. Um, so that's something. I would also say looking at part-time work. I mean, helping kids actually have a stake in the game. Uh, it can not only help from a funding perspective, but giving children that ownership of the college experience. Um, so those are some of the things that I would certainly certainly take a look at. It'd be interesting to know in the research, like who they asked. Did they ask uh, middle class Americans, wealthy Americans, um, Americans that don't actually make a lot of money, and college isn't even on the table for them? Because it'd be interesting to know who actually is going broke. If if college isn't even on the table to begin with, if you were in a, a a family that doesn't make any money, and it's like no, college isn't even an option. What are you even talking about? We don't go to college in this family. Um, is it middle class people and wealthier people who are actually putting their kids' education, um, uh, you know, in front of their retirement? I don't know. Did it say? Yeah, the the survey at the end had the demographics of, and it was a pretty yeah. widely dispersed demographic. One stat from the the survey I thought was interested that asked basically how much the parents, how much are you going to be able to help at all? Um, and many said, I'm not going to be able to able to contribute at all. Some a little bit, most only 12% said they're going to be able to cover the entire cost of college, which means you know a good percentage of the kids, the majority of kids, are going to have to have some other way to pay for college. Um, and, the, and we all know it, the majority of people do graduate with debt. The average debt is around thirty thousand dollars, which is manageable. It's when I hear about people graduate with over a hundred thousand like dollars. Yes, yeah. That's just it's just crazy. I mean, it's yeah. not, I don't blame you. I'm not saying you're crazy. If you had that amount of loan, I feel bad for you. It's a tough situation to be in. Well, it's even rougher if when you you graduated with a degree in literature and you've got six like some six of us figure did. debt, right? <laughs> yeah, you're not paying that off anytime soon. Right. So I'll tell you the truth. When I was 17, I thought, hey, I'll be a philosophy major. Great idea. I was too. When I well, of course, I went into the seminary. We all as seminarians were philosophy majors. And somebody said, well, what are you going to do to make a living with that? And I was like, oh man, that's a great point. Open a philosophy shop. Well, do you want right. to teach? No. Like, all right. So that kind of narrows that down. So I think that is really important though, is consider you know, trying to get your child, and, and at 18, I mean, a lot of us are still children. I certainly was. Yeah. Um, consider this as a business decision. Like, how is this major and this debt that you're going to take on, how is that an investment in yourself? So, you know, I've seen your podcast where you've talked about improving your own personal capital, and I think that's one of the best investments you can make, but there's got to be an expected return, right? So, 
pick a major that's marketable, not just interesting. It's not just about self-actualization. At some point, when you're talking about the money that a four-year university costs, it's a business decision. Yep, totally agree. All right, let's move on to number two, getting a 15-year mortgage that they can't afford. Why is that a mistake? Yeah, so the thing with a 15-year mortgage is, especially in a low interest rate environment today, the spread between a 15 and a 30 isn't as significant as it used to be, but the payment is a lot more because you're paying off principal on a 15-year schedule versus a 30-year schedule. And so all too often, I'll see people that have done this, and it's a very noble goal to pay off your house. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people that are house-rich and cash-poor, and a 15-year mortgage can exacerbate that. My advice to clients is, yeah, it might cost you a little bit more in terms of interest, but you know, depending on their situation, obviously, um, by having the flexibility of the lower payment, they can always pay it off faster. Nobody's going to take your house if you don't make the extra payment, but if you don't make that minimum payment and you come on hard times, you know, you're going to have problems. Right. I pulled up some numbers. The, the These days, a 15-year mortgage, the rate on it is 3.05%. A 30-year is 3.6%. So, it's not that big of a difference. The average size of a new mortgage these days is $350,000. The payment difference is, is almost $900 a month between the two. And you have to have a good a way, some way to cover that, because that's $10,000 a year. Exactly. And so, I think that comes down to back to the infinite wants and limited means, right? So, if you're going to put your retirement at risk for paying off the house, that might not be the best choice. Or, you know, funding a child's college education, it may be better to invest those monies elsewhere. Because what happens is if people have done this and then they need money and they don't have money on the side, guess where they go? Where to the they? house. To the house. Right? They get they get an equity line. Right. So they're reversing what their initial goal was. Right, right. So they were trying to pay off the mortgage, and now they just had to re-increase it because they had to access those funds. Right. It's one of those things where, like, sometimes quantitatively, and when you just look at the numbers, it makes sense. But when you actually deal with real life people, it it doesn't always re- the theory and the reality of people's situation doesn't always jibe. Right. We're actually in a point. You mentioned the low interest rates, and they've dropped significantly over the last year. Um, these days, are you talking to your clients about refinancing? Absolutely. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is obviously the reduced uh, interest cost. And if their goal is to pay off the house, I just had this conversation the other day, and it was really hard to get this guy to understand. Um, if we could get him to pay off, to refinance, he's got more money that will go to principal. He could continue to make the same payment that he's been making, which he's comfortably making, but just pay off the house even faster. Or he could look at diverting some of those funds to other investment strategies. Great. Uh, and anyone who's thinking about it, certainly, I think I read recently that something like 8 million homeowners now would benefit by refinancing. And there are plenty of good calculators on the internet that can help you make that decision. We have the appraiser coming by on Sunday. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what to do because our house still has like walls that have been ripped apart. And so I don't know how I'm going to explain that away. Uh, hang blankets, very large blankets. Right? We yeah. just we just have tapestries in this house. <laughs> uh, they'll convey. Can we add that to the appraisal sure, cost? They increase the, the value. We were going for an open concept. <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. All right. Mistake number three, having accounts spread all over the place. Yeah, life's busy. I mean, it's hard to keep track of things, right? And so, uh, a lot of times people will have, we're a transient society when it comes to employment, so people will have old retirement accounts and they're not really sure what's going on with it. 
um, and they have them spread out kind of piecemeal. So it's very hard to develop a strategy when they're spread out all over. So being able to see everything in one or two places can really simplify things for people and help them have a better understanding of, of where they're at when it comes to their finances. I have to say, so I said in the beginning, we've all made financial mistakes, and this is one of mine. I recently uh, rediscovered that I opened a Roth IRA years ago, and it's only $2,000, so that's what the annual limit was. So I don't know, that's over a decade ago or so. And I've totally forgotten about it, and I rediscovered it because you have these accounts spread all over the place, you lose track of them. Um, so, you know, and, oh, I don't know. I don't well, that's know. a fun surprise. Yeah, Finding looks like you, you didn't find five dollars in your jeans pocket. Like you found. Unfortunately, I didn't invest it, so it's still oh, sitting in. Oh, it cash. was just sitting in cash for the yeah. last ten years. Yeah, I know. I don't want to hear about it. That's oh, that's a mistake so that cost me thousands of dollars. Literally thousands oh, of dollars. Oh man, that'll just make our listeners' hearts. <laughs> that'll make them feel so much better about themselves. That's really kind of you to share that story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, so when it comes to consolidating accounts, that often comes down to basically saying, like, I want to keep all my accounts with maybe one or two providers, a lot of transfers, things like that. Any tips people should know or tricks, things, traps they should avoid as they do that? Yeah, it depends on the tax classification. So if it's uh, qualified money, don't take possession of it yourself. You don't want to just, oh, I'm going to take this money out and I'm going to go put it back in. Qualified meaning a 401k or an IRA, something like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, because what happens, that could trigger a taxable event. And if you don't handle it right, it's complicated. They withhold some money back and you have to pay it back, plus what they withhold. And if you don't have the cash flow, it can be really problematic. Um, so you want to make sure you're doing either a direct rollover or a custodian to custodian transfer. Um, and, you know, I had a, a client who had a CD IRA at a bank, and they went in and they said, uh, my CD's up, I want to take my money. Well, the banker wasn't that experienced in this, and so they actually just moved it to their money market, right? Oof, and like and they got the bonus for opening the new money market, a taxable yeah. money market. So I met with this guy. We talked about this. It was over $300,000. Oh. Wow. And and so was, that was considered a distribution? It was considered a oh. distribution. Fortunately, we caught it before the 60 days. Oh, okay. So we were able to move it back into an IRA vehicle. Funny thing is, this guy didn't become a client because he didn't want to pay for any advice, but I literally saved him $100,000 <laughs> in a tax, a tax bill. Wow. Uh, so that's for transferring IRAs and 401k, stuff like that. Uh, with taxable accounts, uh, it used to be that when you transferred from one broker to another, you risk losing cost basis information. Mm -hmm. They've in implemented some rules that make it basically the information comes over, it's more likely to come over. But I still think it makes plenty of sense to print out all that information and get all that information before you move those investments. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And the IRS, I think it was in 2011 or 2012, uh, made it to where brokerage firms are required to report cost basis, so that cost basis will track. Uh, but this is a fun part of my job when I get to play forensic detective and try to help people come up with what that basis was. Uh, one thing I will say is whenever you are transferring non-qualified assets, meaning non-retirement, non-401k, you want to make sure that you do it in kind, if possible, not just liquidate and sell. So you can actually, and a lot of people don't know this, I was really surprised, you can move investments from one firm to another without selling. I mean, it seems, you know, that would be common knowledge, but it's not. 
And so, you know, if you're moving from one one platform to another, you can just transfer those assets in kind. You don't have to sell. It's not a taxable event. But if you do sell, it can be problematic on the tax side. So just make sure you know what you're doing there. And then if you're looking at things like annuities or life insurance, you want to explore um, the options of 1035 exchange, which is a way to maintain the tax deferral and, and tax-free nature of those. Tax-free on the life insurance side, tax-deferred on the annuity side. Right. So, let's move on to mistake number four, having large cash balances while carrying balances on credit cards. Yeah, this one is is a real shocker to me. I never thought people really just kept a lot of money in the bank because I always, you know, from the time I was young, it's when money gets to a certain level, it gets invested. Um, but I see it all the time, and typically it's because people are too busy to really think about it or to know what to do or who to do something with as far as like to help them and decide what to do with it. So there's a lot of fear of indecision. So money will just kind of accumulate because we're busy and it's like, oh, I'll get to that one day. You know, I call it the old around to it. I'll get to it when I get around to it. Um, But people will also be overspending on their credit cards. And emotionally, it doesn't feel good to make a big payment to somebody. So if you're carrying $20,000 on a credit card cuz maybe you've gotten uh, you know gotten some vacations and maybe done some work around the house, it doesn't feel good to write that check or to transfer that money to the credit card, so you don't do it. And so people will hold these cash balances because they don't want to not have money, right? And then they have this balance on a credit card and what I saw is, you know, the average interest rate on a credit card, according to U.S. News and World Reports, around 17 percent. Yep. So they're holding a balance on the credit card of 17 percent, so they can keep money in the bank at less than one percent, right? Even if you could get a decent return on that money, you're probably not going to find something that's going to pay 17 percent. So rip the Band-Aid off, pay off the credit card. And if you need money or if an emergency happens, you can always go back to the credit card if you don't have the cash in the bank, but at least you're not paying that interest and just holding cash. What about other types of lower returning investments like bonds, for example? Would you feel the same way if someone came to your office, they had $20,000 in credit card debt, and they also had bonds in their portfolio? Would you have them sell the bonds to pay off the credit cards? In 99 out of 100 cases, I would say yes, um, unless there was some extenuating circumstances. And you know, also a caveat is we're assuming that these bonds are in a non-qualified account, right? Right. Uh, if they're in a non-qualified account and you're getting three or four percent on a bond, why would you want to have something that's paying you three or four percent when you're having to pay 17 percent over here, right? So it's a way, in my view, to almost generate a, tax, uh, a risk-free return. Of a net of like fourteen uh, percent, without taking any of the risk of bonds. So one of the reasons why someone might have credit card debt is basically they're just not managing their finances well, right? They're they're spending more than they're taking in. So as a financial advisor, do you find that pretty frequently? And do you do do you actually help people with their budgeting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so when it comes to cash flow, you know, I think back. Um, I grew up in Southern Illinois. Outdoor sports is a big thing. So I remember one time my dad and I were going fishing together. And I'm backing the boat in to the on the ramp. He starts flailing his arms about, going, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" Like, what's going on here? He forgot to put the plug in. Oops. So, yeah. So the boat's <laughs> filling up with water. So what does this have to do with not money? It, it, absolutely nothing. I just wanted to embarrass my dad. <laughs> Hi, dad. Um, but in all seriousness, when you have a hole in the boat, the first thing you need to do before you start bailing is identify where that hole is. So I encourage people to go back and look at what they're spending money on. And then it 
if you're spending more than you're bringing in and you're starting to accumulate credit card debt, you really need to think, what am I willing to give up? Right? It comes back to that infinite wants and limited means. So you're going to have to give something up if there's not enough money coming in, or you're going to have to make more money. So you have to make a, a decision and prioritize. But that's absolutely something I help with. Um, we have a tool through LPL uh, called Wealth Vision. You can actually aggregate your credit card information, your banking information, so we can see where the money goes. Clients can share that with me, and then I can work with them to say, okay, here's what your spending is, what your spending history is. Let's see where the problem is, if there is a problem. Um, I really hate the idea of budgeting because people will come up. It's like when I decided I'm going to start working out again. Oh, I'm going to hit the gym four days a week. Well, I'm not hitting the gym four days a week. If I get there twice, it's a good week, right? So you can make these goals that set yourself up for failure. Like if you're spending $1,000 a month going out to eat, you're probably not taking that down to nine, you know, to, to nothing. You could maybe take it down to 750 but you're not going to completely change your behavior. So it's important to understand what your actual past behavior has been. Gotcha. All right, last one. Mistake number five, waiting until they have it all figured out to develop a financial plan. Yeah, I, I see that too. People are like, well, I don't have enough money, or I'm, I need to better understand investing before I work with an advisor. But then it comes down to when are you going to take the time to really understand investing? Or they're embarrassed to admit the mistakes that they've made. You know, Sometimes people might say, gosh, I had $2,000 in a Roth IRA that I forgot about. I don't <laughs> want to admit that to my advisor or a national podcast. Uh, I'm just kidding, bro. But uh, right. It's all right. I can take it. In all seriousness, it's, it's important to realize like I'm where I'm at, so I can either try to figure this out on my own or I can go get help. If if you're if you're having health issues, we go to the doctor and we just do whatever they say, right? Unquestioning. It's like, okay, because that's something where it's hit us in the face. A lot of times finances don't hit you in the face until it's too late to really do anything about it. So I think it's important to just say, look, I'm where I'm at. I'm going to figure this out on my own or I'm going to go find somebody to help me um, and go from there. So there's the development of the plan, which can involve all kinds of things. It can be an actual written plan, or it can be calculations for people saving goals, or all kinds of things that can be part of a plan. But you can come up with it, but then there's actually putting it into action. Um, for many financial advisors, I've heard that's actually one of the hardest things to get people to do. Like the, you know, the people come in, they pay for the advice, and then they meet them a year later, and they say, oh yeah, I never got around to doing that. Is that something you've experienced as well? So I've seen that, absolutely. And so what I've realized is a lot of my job as an advisor is to help lead people to reach the goals that they want to do. So that involves some accountability. So like, okay, so you want to get your estate plan developed. When do we want to have that done? And then me following up to make sure that they've actually taken the actions to do it. Um, it, it's holding people's hand along that journey and saying, look, you're not alone in this. And I think a year is too long, especially when you're in the beginning of developing a plan. So I have a process I call the NGPS process. It's where we identify where you're at now, today, figure out what your goals are. So what do you want to do? Right? You want to get your estate plan in place. You want to make sure you've got long-term care covered. You want to consolidate those investment accounts. We can look at what the problems are to accomplishing those goals and then strategize. And then we revisit that NGPS, like a roadmap, but we revisit it with checkpoints. So if you said, yeah, I want to get my estate plan done, we're either going to get an appointment with an attorney 
or we're going to have a deadline where you're going to have gone out and, and found somebody to help you with that. And you'll actually go to those appointments with people as well, if I remember that correctly. Yes, I do. Yeah. Because it can be overwhelming, and sometimes it helps to have somebody translate lawyer speak into people speak. Um, and, you know, there are certainly great attorneys that are good at communicating these concepts to people. But sometimes it just helps, especially in a difficult concept, like, hey, what happens if I die? It's not the most fun to think about, right? But it's really important. And it's not just documents. It's, it's an understanding of what your estate plan is. And estate plans aren't just for the wealthy. That's another another show. <laughs> it's remarkable how much being a financial planner is like being a personal trainer. <laughs> it really is. Or it's people like, I know, I know I should exercise. I know, I know. And then you hire someone to solve all your problems, but then it turns out you, you're still the problem <laughs> that you need to solve. <laughs> That's it. You know, personal trainer can tell you exactly. Here's what you need to eat. Here's what, how, yeah. how you, what your workout regimen should work look like. But it's up to you to take the action and and do the exercise and change your diet. And if you're not going to change, you can't expect anything to be different. Well, this has been great, Josh. Well, thank you. It's a it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you having me on the show. Where should people go if they want to learn more from or about you? Uh, yeah, you can go to www.goodlifefinancialnova.com or on Facebook, at Good Life Financial Nova. Outstanding. Thanks. Thank you. Well, bro, that's the show. Yay! Thanks to Heather for working the uh, booth for us. Is that what we call it? Uh, yeah, Rick's Rick's uh, somewhere in Canada right now, I guess. I'm not sure if he's actually decided yet. <laughs> So, um, so yes, the show, uh, while it was taped by Heather, it will still be edited by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.